Hi, my name is Susan Morinaga. Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, starting at verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear God, we do come and offer you this day. Uh, if you give it to us, we offer it back. And we ask you to inhabit it with time with you, with the ability to hear you. Um, we offer the concerns of our hearts, the things on our mind, the things you've been a part of this week or even this morning. Maybe a flurry gathering, even to get here across the threshold of this high school, whatever and whoever we are coming in to this morning, we do ask you to speak to us, to guide us, to minister to us. And not just to us, but to those who are sitting next to you. We lift up those on our left and on our right and pray not only would you be among us for us, but you do that in us and around us, the rest of us as well. We pray for this room, that you would fill it with you. In your name, amen. Well, we met again. I'm Dean Miller, and uh, I am officially the priest in charge of this church right now. The acronym that a couple of us have laughed about this week. Many of you know our beloved rector, Johnny Christina, and his wife, Sarah, are on a three month sabbatical. They are somewhere in Florida, and we hope they are not watching this service. We hope they're doing something totally unrelated to CCD right now. So, um, on behalf of the staff, um, I just want to say we are ready and willing to love you the next few months in Johnny's absence. They're lovely people, as you know, my colleagues here, and we've worked hard to fill in gaps and get ready. I bet we'll miss something. I bet there'll be a gap we don't fill, but we are excited to be a part of loving you uh, on behalf of the kingdom and you, but also to have Johnny and Sarah while they're gone. I want you to think for a second about something you're good at. Okay, something you know I'm good at. Okay, so for example, these are things that I know some of the people in this room. Raise your hand if you're good at art. Or get a way up. You, you could be confident about that. Bob Magnuson, if you didn't raise your hand, he's going to ask you to raise your hand. Raise your hand if you're good at engineering. Okay, some of you employed that way. Some of you might believe it that way, but maybe your you know, spouse would say, yeah, maybe not so good, but you know what you're good at. What about bike riding? Raise your hand if you're good at bike riding. Okay, you're, like, you're superlative at bike riding. Raise your hand if you're really good at a spreadsheet. Come on. Be proud. Come on. Order out of chaos. That's God's work. We do God's work. Raise your hand if you're good at baking. There's a lot of confident bakers in the room. Love that. Raise your hand, adult or kid, if you're good at building Lego. <laughs> That's the most hands in the whole thing. That's great. Okay, let's, okay, so remember that skill, the thing you know you're good at. And then think about in that skill, what would it take for you to see someone with a similar skill who was better than you at it, to ask them to help you to know how to do it? So like, again, you're an engineer, and you around somebody, and you realize they are a better engineer than me. What would it take in your spirit to be humble enough to go, hey, could you, could you show me? How do you do that? Or you you built a thousand piece Lego, but you meet one of the guys who's like 
dedicates their basement to Legos, has them in trays, imagines stuff and builds, and you're like, okay, that guy is a whole other level of Lego than me. I would need him to show me. This morning we're going to kick off a series with me in from now till June, looking at something that Jesus was exceptional at, really, really good at, and that's interacting intimately with his Father and his Father's plan for the world staying connected and deeply in prayer with his dad. We're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer. Myself and some others will come in and help us look at the Lord's Prayer for several weeks. And the goal of our time is, is to grow in our own intimacy with God and, and involvement with his plan in the world. Because what we see is Jesus was so good at praying. People who had prayed and thought they probably were pretty good at praying were like, hey, can you tell me how to do that? Now, as we start this series this morning, I first want to embed, sort of set a context for the next few weeks, with some comments about um, what it means to be Anglican, and what it looks like for words that we use like Anglican spiritual formation, or Anglican discipleship, or being uh, a follower of Jesus who's being affected by the Anglican faith, because the Lord's Prayer fits really well into what we believe about how God works in people's lives. It's actually a big part of what it means for Ang- to be an Anglican. And I know not many of us grew up in an Anglican church. Raise your hand if you grew up in an Episcopal or Anglican church. Raise your hand if this is new and you don't really even know what Anglican means. Awesome. I didn't grow up in an Anglican church. I was drawn to it in my early 20s. And as I've talked to many of you, particularly some of us who are newer to this community, you're like, hey, what's it mean? To be Anglican, like what, why do we think it's important? What's, what's a virtue? What our values do we carry as an Anglican church? And one of the deepest values we carry globally, this is a global movement, is prayer. Developing intimacy and, and walking with God through life. We actually believe that being deeply in prayer, that this being a fundamental habit for you as a Christian, is it will give you deeper, deeper purpose, deeper peace, a deeper connection with God, and even a deeper connection with your neighbor. Now, we're not the only denomination that believes in prayer. And we're certainly not the only denomination that uses the Lord's Prayer in our worship or in our private devotions. But we place a significant value on developing prayer as a habit in the life of many women and children in our churches. And the Lord's Prayer is for sure one of the set ways of prayer that we're committed to as a people. And deep down, we believe that interacting with God is fundamental to being fully human. Not just Anglican, but fully human. So again, I want to make just a few comments about Anglican spiritual formation and prayer, and then usher us into a few thoughts on the Lord's Prayer before we continue line by line in the coming weeks. So picture it's 1545. 1545, and you're in England, and you are Thomas Cranmer. You're the Archbishop of Canterbury. You're the Archbishop during the turbulent years around Henry VIII, and his wives and his daughters, Mary and Elizabeth. And you've been changed by Jesus, and you, you're, you're caught up in the Reformation, little R that's happening throughout Europe. We'll call, we give it a big R later in history, but then it's sort of a little R. And, and you're tasked with reforming the worship of England. Not just your family or your neighborhood, or your city, but the entire country of England. 
Because there's some errors in view that have slipped in to the church. These errors include uh, the belief that to earn God's love, you can do things. But that's how we earn God's love, to figure out all these works of faith and effort. That's how we get salvation. Or that you could buy certain indulgences or trinkets and keep them in your house, and that'll give you special intimacy, special access to God. Which creates real problems if you can't afford those trinkets, right? Another error is that clergy should pray. Well, quite frankly, the standards of clergy selection at the time weren't that great. Well, you should pray in Latin, particularly in church. Not all clergy are taught Latin or speak Latin. And our services together, when we gather, are in Latin, which almost none of you speak. Because we're a pre-literate society. You don't just not speak Latin, you don't read. Not all the towns in England have a priest or a church, and so you have to wait for a priest for a service of communion in it, which at that time the church was teaching was the high point of worship. And you don't get to partake of both elements when you do that. So again, you're Thomas Cranmer, you're the Archbishop of Canada. Here's your errors in view. You're handed the opportunity to reform. What are you going to do? Cranmer, again, is compelled by the renewal happening in the church throughout Europe, and really the world, especially as the, the rediscovery of who Jesus really was, of what he did, and the implications of his salvation by grace on the cross and what it meant for us. And Cranmer decides to reform the foundation of the Church of England around its worship. But a worship for everyone, not just clergy, but cobblers and bakers, seamstresses, women, men, and children. He wanted to form the worship of all the Christian people, of all the people in England. And he wanted that worship to be in a language we all understood, so in English, not in Latin. Which was, frankly, controversial in some circles. There are actually writings, leaders, people who, who published works, who said it didn't matter if the people understood Latin in worship or not. They should just go through the rhythm of the words and they would be fine. He wants to develop spiritual literacy in us, in our neighbors, and then for it to spread around England and the world, for us to know God, be able to love him, and be interacting with him all week long. He's not bringing newfangled theology, but the renewed and restored worship from the Bible of Jesus and his work on the cross and the empty tomb. Things were celebrated, particularly in Easter season. So he writes a guide to worship both for Sundays and the rest of the week, seven days a week, centered on us being a praying people. Prayer for us all is a central part of our lives and our worship. And he put that in a book called the Book of Common Prayer. To teach, instruct, and form disciples of Jesus in a language they can understand. There's a deeper exploration and, and, and history of this in a book that was over my shoulder, the, the biography of the Book of Common Prayer by Alan Jacobs, he's a professor at Baylor. If you're interested in some of what I'm talking about right now, it's a delightful book, it's not a hard read, but you'll get an understanding of why we use this particular book to guide our worship. Our roots and our foundation as Anglicans, the cornerstone of what we believe is that being a praying people is fundamental to our living well as Jesus' people. And again, it's rooted 
in the Book of Common Prayer. This guides our worship. You wouldn't know that necessarily because we don't bring books in and put them at pews or at your feet for you to use during the service. So you, you might wonder what Johnny and I carry around. It's like a Bible, so you might think it's a Bible. We have Bibles here, but this is our Book of Common Prayer. It's over 500 years old, and it's not just for Sunday, but for every day in the week. Now, what Cranmer did was decide instead, again, he didn't want you to be monks and nuns. He wanted us to be people with the sort of depth of faith monks and nuns might have. Monks and nuns might pray eight times during the day, and so he decided, well, we could pray four times during the day. So he set out four different hours of prayer. They didn't take an hour, but that's what they were called. Morning, noon, evening, and compline. Again, four instead of the eight for monasteries because we believe you and I could be sort of little monks and nuns for the kingdom where we are dedicated to what God's doing. And if you look at those services, each of them have a particular set prayer in them. Anyone want to guess which set prayer is in each of the four services? The Lord's Prayer for worship and instruction. Again, it's a set prayer given the words to pray which even then in the 16th century could be controversial. There are people who felt, again, learned people, people who wrote and published books, who said um, set prayers were not great because they're inauthentic. Some of us probably grew up in churches or have been a part of churches in our lives. I have, where what you prayed in all the services were extemporaneous services. And there's value not in one or the other, but actually in both. What we believe in is both. But there's real value in set prayers. And I'll talk more in a couple of weeks about how set prayers help us, again, in our spiritual formation as Anglicans, what they do for us. But Kramer wrote what he called collects and all kinds of set prayers himself, but that he embedded the creeds, the Lord's Prayer, and other established set prayers in the worship for these four services. Again, set prayers said over and over for a non-literate people to catechize, Teach, train, and inform people, teach the young and the old. Embed your life in prayer as you grow in age so you learn and soak in what God has done for you, and that will inform how you live. Now, the guiding principle underneath what he was doing was this Latin phrase, lex arandi, lex credendi, and lex divens. Lex arandi, lex credendi, and lex divens, which is the law of praying is the law of believing is the law of living. That how we pray and train up and form in our prayer, we are grown and stretched and embedded in God's work, and that informs our belief and then therefore informs how we live. Picture again, you're in 1545, England, let's say you live in Southampton, and somebody sins against you. Because guess what? There were sinners then too. What do you do with that pain? And anguish, somebody sinned against you. That stinks, doesn't matter what time in history it is. Well, what do you pray? We're in your worship. You pray, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. What do you believe then? Because of what you pray, you believe it's important to forgive as God forgives. In fact, a better way to understand that line, which we'll unpack when we get to it, is as we have forgiven our trespassers, please forgive us our sins, O Lord. So you realize from how you prayed and what you believed that the way you should live is to forgive. Doesn't make it easy, but like the creed that guides how we live and what we do. 
Let's say you live today in modern-day Vienna or Herndon or Reston or Fairfax or Burke, and someone sins against you. Anybody ever have that happen? What do you do? What do we pray? And what do we believe? And then therefore, how should we live? The law of praying is the law of believing is the law of living. Anglican spiritual formation is foundation on prayer, on intimacy with God for all. If you look at our baptism liturgy, one of the things we do when we baptize infants is we say, this is good and important, and what we believe will happen is as you age, you'll be confirmed. You'll go before the bishop and be confirmed. And one of the ways we'll make sure you're ready to be confirmed is we'll make sure that you know four things. The creeds, Nicene, the apostles, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. This is the embedded set prayer of the church for centuries. One of my favorite parts of communion that I wish you got to be a part of the young because of where you are, where I am physically during communion, is when I hear super excited, loud little kids when we get to the lines in the Lord's Prayer. Because they cascade off the back of the stage. It's so great. Our Father, who art in heaven, love them. I do check. You got four things to teach for the bishop. Boom. Lord's Prayer is not. Because it's embedded in that little kid's life. Our passage in reading this morning that Susan read was from Matthew 6. That's where the Lord's Prayer is in Matthew. It's in two places. Luke and Matthew. A Jewish tax collector and a Gentile doctor. And if you remember a few summers ago when we were meeting outside for worship and I'd come as a guest preacher in the morning and we were outside and we were going through the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. In those passages, Jesus is inviting us into his new kingdom. He's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says that early in Matthew and then later in chapters 5, 6, and 7. He's laying out just what it looks like. He's saying, I am bringing a whole new way of living. Heaven is coming here, and I'm inviting you and forming you into heaven citizens. What I'm asking you to do is to live like people from heaven. Giving you a new passport. You're from heaven now. As such, we're going to live a new way. And he's been teaching on that throughout these chapters. Just in the paragraphs before our verses, he's talked about what it means to be from heaven in earth, giving to the needy. And then right after that, he's been teaching about what it means to be like from heaven on earth to love your enemies, because that's what happens in heaven. After this, he's going to talk about fasting, because when you're here from heaven and you fast, you don't let everybody know you're fasting, like the Pharisees are doing. And then he's going to talk about what you do with your anxiety. Because in heaven, guess what? You and I won't be anxious. And here as heaven citizens, we're given a way to take that anxiety and do something with it. That's what's happening before and after our paragraph. Here we are as Jesus' family, meant to be his people, his emissaries, his ambassadors, and to pray. We, we grip heaven, and we love earth. We grip earth, because God loves both those places. And in that position, we pray. Now, if you notice, 
Does my physical being right now look like anything you've seen before? Praying is God's citizen. The Anglican Baptist or Presbyterian is crucified. Because to do it well is to hold fast to heaven and to love the earth he placed us in. That means it's it's vulnerable, it's painful. I can't hold my arms up this long. I'm getting tired. But, but this act is Jesus inviting us into the revolution. Come be a rebel. Come be heaven's citizen here. Again, this is the OG prayer of God's new people. It's 2,000 years old. And can you see how Cranmer, what he's doing, is merely picking up on Jesus' intent for his men, women, and children. Cranmer has scaled back and looked down through history and said, that's what Jesus was doing. He was forming a praying people embedded in the world. I'm going to do that in England. I'm going to teach these people to pray. Because I want Jesus' passion for them in the world to be our passion for the church, little C, around the world, Church of England, Anglicans, and all our brothers and sisters, whether Anglican or not, around the world. Does that make sense? This is what prayer means in England. It doesn't make sense, please come ask me. I have to answer or email. I can talk with that. But it's important to know this is why we value this. This is why we organize our lives. Because we believe. It's what God's inviting us to do. So I just want to make them four brief, overarching contextual comments about the Lord's Prayer that we could, I encourage you to come back to maybe in a couple of weeks. As we look at the Lord's Prayer, this is what's happening. First, make sure to note the odd ask. Again, in Luke, not in our passage this morning, and we'll go back and forth in our readings through the series. But in Luke, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Teach us how to pray. Jews were good at prayer. I mean, really good. Notably good. This is William Barclay, one of my favorite Old Testament, New Testament scholars. The Jews were characteristically and preeminently a praying people. They came to God with an absolute confidence that God desired their prayers and that God would hear them. No Jew ever doubted the power of prayer. No Jew ever doubted that God's ear and heart were open to the prayer of all his children. That's who's coming to Jesus saying, hey, we, we couldn't help but notice. You're way better at this than us. It means something to you, it doesn't to us. You're interacting with your father in a whole other way. Teach us how to pray. We know in other stories and the disciples, sometimes not so humble. But when you ask somebody to teach you something, you're ready to be humble and to learn. This is the only recorded instance, the only recorded instance in all four Gospels of the disciples asking Jesus to teach them something. It's an odd ask. It's amazing. It should get our attention. They don't ask Jesus to teach them how to heal the blind, at least in what we have recorded. They don't ask Jesus how to multiply bread. Frankly, I think that would be kind of cool. They don't ask Jesus how to walk on water. Come on. But they do ask him how to pray. So there must be something pretty unique 
that Jesus' intimate interaction with his Father. Second, the answer to that odd ask is an amazing gift. Again, this Jesus, who's that good at prayer, that intimate with his Father, gives us a template on how to talk to the living God. What if today, on the way out, I said, look, Corky and I have done some work, and out there is a way that literally, if you do what we say in one week, you will all have a million dollars. And, you, and we, had, we had done it, and we had a million dollars, so we could verify it from my life. Because we're cynics, not all of you would pick it up, or because you don't trust me in court. But then what if next Sunday we came back to everybody who done had a million dollars? I bet those of us who didn't want to do that, I'm in. Or at least try. What's okay? This is more stunning good news. How to talk to the living God. This is God's approved way through his son. It's like Steph Curry taking out and going, this is how you shoot a three-pointer. It's like the five guys found there saying, this is how you make a great burger. Are you ever anxious or concerned that Jesus or that God might be frustrated with how you speak with him? That you might get it wrong? Maybe you grew up in a context where you Felt like you could never do something like it. Your authority figures were never approving or affirming of you. This is, this is God's invitation to you. Come to me this way. It's not just my approved way, it's an offered way. I want you to do it. A scholar named Daryl Johnson says this This prayer frees us. From a universal anxiety of the human heart, whether or not we are praying in a way that pleases the living God. You do not need to carry that anxiety ever. These are the concerns of the heart of God. It covers all the ways we are made, all manner of time, our past, our present, our futures, all our relationships. This is His Son saying, Pray this way. I love this. Quote about the prayer by the German theologian Helmut Thielke. He calls it the prayer that spans the world. This is the prayer that spans the world, and you and I get to pray. Third, then, this amazing gift guides us into how to relate to the eternal, omniscient, holy, and living God who is also our Father. The eternal, omniscient, holy, and living God who is also our Father. These are pretty stark. Contrast, aren't they, in this prayer? We're learning about who God is. If you know how the Israelites referenced God, spoke to God in the Old Testament, you would know they would never have assumed that Jesus would say, here's the way to start, our Father. Many Pharisees, scribes, scholars wouldn't even say the name of God out loud. People would take so much time to even write out the name of Yahweh as they translate. This prayer starts by addressing God intimately and lovingly as Father, and then by bowing to the Lord's greatness and majesty. We have a 75-pound bowling duo named Caspian. Caspian is not bowling all black, and he has a certain cocky sense of himself on the wall. He likes to see dogs. You might like to give a dog a little stink eye so he can kind of bark, strut around a little bit. We also have some really good friends who have a, a great, a big white great Pyrenees. If you know about great Pyrenees, they look sort of like a Newfoundland with longer hair. 
This dog's name is Midas. Midas, my dog rocks about 75 pounds, Midas rocks about 130. And he has this long, flowing white hair. He looks like something out of the Lord of the Rings. And Midas walks around, and I would say he sees our dog with warm indifference. And Caspian, when he sees him, he both wants to approach like Midas could be his buddy. And he wants to bow down and kiss Midas' paw. And so there's this sort of fit start of, hey, Midas, how are you? And Midas might look into the distance with his tail out and let Caspian smell him. Extend the call. And Caspian is super excited he's been welcomed in. And it's that those two contrasts. For those of us who are together in Genesis, can you hear that what Jesus is inviting you into in this prayer, what God's invited you into, is the same invitation in Genesis 1. Remember, Genesis 1 is God transcendent, and Genesis 2 was God imminent. God over the world and God in our midst. God who is going to hear all our prayer and who has the hands of the kingdom, this new kingdom, and God says, come and call me your father. Both things, reverence for the God who's inviting us and instructing us, and reverence for the God who is our father and knows our needs. That's, again, amazing. Fourth, last, this is a prayer, both for individuals, but also for the community. This is for you individually, but also for us together. I don't know if you have ever thought, most of the prayers in the Bible are for community prayer. It's not a very Western idea. Most of the prayers and praying in the Bible is as a community. Look at the Psalms and how many are for corporate worship, even those which we assume are just sort of individual often. And again, it's not one or the other. It's both. We're supposed to pray to God alone. We're also supposed to pray to God together. This again is Barclay on this passage. The highest prayer, this is the Jewish understanding of prayer. The highest prayer is always the prayer of the community. The prayer of an individual always tends to be or runs the risk of being selfish. And therefore, the highest kind of prayer is the prayer of the community from which a man or woman must never separate himself. Again, most of the prayers in the Bible were meant to be prayed, at least in some way, in community. And you'll note again, Jesus didn't say, when you pray, pray, my Father. He said, pray, Father. And when Cranmer picks up, hundreds of years later, to write a book of common prayer, you will hear again, in so many of our prayers, we, us, our. Even when we confess sin and commitments, you'll say, we. should be some sort of comfort. You're not alone. Mark Carlson's going to lead us in prayers this morning. And Mark's going to lead us in prayers. It's not just going to be Mark praying for himself, but you might need it to watch him. He's going to lead us. So, an invitation as I close this morning for the next few weeks. Can we commit as a church to praying this prayer every morning together, wherever you are? If, if you have a, a job or a vocation where you leave the house, can you pray it before you cross your threshold? Before you go to work, probably take two to three minutes to sort of reverently pray. And you can do longer than that. You can do 10, 20, 15. I mean, there's plenty of other ways to do that. But at a minimum, can we commit to saying, Lord, yeah, I'm going to pray this prayer before I cross my threshold. 
Some of those have locations that are more inside the house. So maybe you can commit to praying by 9 o'clock. So if you look around the room, let's go quick look. Everybody here would have prayed the Lord's Prayer by 9 o'clock the next week. You might want to do it with somebody, with a roommate, a sibling, your small group, a spouse. I love this prayer. I'm excited about this series. It, it, it gives me the insight and again, we come to communion and we say, as our Jesus, as our Savior Jesus taught us, we are bold. 